Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. I remember one time several years ago, my husband and I were getting ready to go out somewhere fancy. So I took a shower, I shaved my legs and underarms, I dried off with a towel, I moisturized with one lotion for my body and one lotion for my face. I blow dried my recently color treated hair to make it straight. It naturally dries in small curls. And then I used a curling wand to make my hair have big curls instead of small curls. Then I put on a bra to lift my boobs higher than they naturally are. I put on Spanx to suck in my torso to look smaller than it actually is. And then I put on a dress and then I put on high heels to make me look taller than I am. Then on my face, I did a little concealer to make my skin look a more consistent color than it really is. And then I put on eyeshadow and eyeliner to alter the appearance of my eyelids and then mascara to make my eyelashes look longer and thicker and black when they're really just brown. And then I did eyebrow gel to darken my eyebrows, but first I tweezed them to be a slightly different shape than they really are. And then I did some bronzer to make me look like I was blushing when I wasn't, and then some lip gloss to make my lips look shinier than they are naturally. And then, of course, I put on a little jewelry for some added sparkle. So in the meantime, next to me, my husband took a shower, dried off, put on his suit, put on his flat shoes... And okay, he did put lotion on his face and hands, and he put in one dab of one hair product into his hair, and he was ready to go. And I compared my getting ready process with his, and I thought, wow, I just altered almost every aspect of my body in order to measure up to society's beauty standards for women. And I spent a lot of time and a lot of thought and a lot of money on each and every one of those products that enabled me to meet those standards. Next to me, my husband altered nothing about his physical appearance. He spent no extra money and absolutely no extra thought. And I thought, wow, I have been sold something here. Today's book is called The Beauty Myth written by Naomi Wolf in 1991. And I am super excited to discuss this book, and I'm super excited to discuss it with my reading partner today, Vanessa Loader. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. (laughs) I'm just so thrilled to be here supporting you and this podcast. I have been trying to unwind all the ways that I've internalized patriarchy for the last decade, and the layers of that onion just keep peeling back and going deeper than I ever realized. So I'm I'm really, really excited to be here, to be part of this, and to be having this conversation with you. Me too. Thanks. And you and me both with that patriarchy onion, it just keeps, the layers just keep going, don't they? Okay, so let's let's start talking about the book. And really quickly, I'll just um, talk for a minute about its author. So Naomi Wolf was born in San Francisco, California to a Jewish family. Her mother is an anthropologist, and her father was a Romanian-born scholar at UC Berkeley and a Yiddish translator. Wolf attended Yale University, receiving her Bachelor of Arts in English Literature in 1984. From 1985 to 87, she was a Rhodes Scholar at New College at Oxford University, and her initial period at Oxford was difficult for her because she experienced what she called quote, raw sexism, overt snobbery, and casual anti-Semitism, end quote. 
apparently a professor at Oxford also assessed her writing as too personal and too subjective and advised her against submitting her doctoral thesis. And Wolf later talked about that by saying, quote, my subject didn't exist. I wanted to write feminist theory and I kept being told by the dons there, there was no such thing. And, oh. <laughs> right. And there was, I mean, it was just pretty new still. Right. So, um, and, and interestingly, the project she was trying to work on for her doctoral thesis was, you know, the beginning drafts, the beginning stages of the book that would become the beauty myth. So, it was, she was trying to work on it then. She didn't finish her doctoral thesis at the time, but she did flesh out her ideas. And The Beauty Myth was published in 1991, and it became an international bestseller. It was named one of the 70 most influential books of the 20th century by The New York Times. And Gloria Steinem wrote, The Beauty Myth is a smart, angry, insightful book and a clarion call to freedom. Every woman should read it. So after Wolf published The Beauty Myth, she had a career in politics. It was mostly working with um, Democratic candidates in the United States, brainstorming ways to reach female voters. She worked with Bill Clinton and later Al Gore. And then after that, she returned to Oxford finally, and she finished her PhD in English literature in 2015. Oh, and really quickly, I just wanted to define a couple of terms before we start sharing passages of the book. Shift means a shift at work, and PBQ means the professional beauty qualification. We'll take turns just bringing out some quotes, and I think I have the first one, right, Vanessa? Yes, you do. Okay, the first theme I want to talk about is the idea that current standards of beauty are a means of controlling women and maintaining patriarchy. So Wolf says, quote, beauty is the last best belief system that keeps male dominance intact, end quote. So she starts by kind of recounting and summarizing the historical process through the 20th century that led to the point that she was writing it in, in the early 90s. And she talks about a period in history that we talked about on our episode with my daughter Lucy on the UN Declaration of Human Rights with Eleanor Roosevelt. And this was the period of time when women had been constrained and confined to the home during the Victorian era. But then many women joined the workforce in order to support their countries during the world wars. And in joining the workforce, they learned new skills, they found new self-confidence, they gained some financial independence for the first time. And I should say, too, that we're, we're talking about women in the United States and in England, mostly. Um, and, and this happened in both countries, that when the men came back home from the wars, then the women were fired from their jobs so that the, the men could take back their positions. And Wolf cites that 3 million American women and 1 million British women were fired from the jo their jobs at the end of World War II, just as a matter of course. Like, the men are back, they need their jobs, kind of nobody questioned it. And at that point, she describes a media campaign that glorified quote-unquote, women at home in magazines and TV ads. And that takes us, you know, into the historical era of the feminine mystique, which listeners will remember with Betty Friedan. It was written in 1963, and Wolf references the feminine mystique in her book, The Beauty Myth, by describing how marketers were capitalizing on American housewives in the 1950s and 60s. So Wolf says, quote, 
the marketer's reports described how to manipulate housewives into becoming insecure consumers of household products. A transfer of guilt must be achieved, they said. Capitalize on guilt over hidden dirt. Stress the therapeutic value of baking, they suggested. With X mix in the home, you'll be a different woman. They urged giving the housewife a sense of achievement to compensate her for a task that was endless and time-consuming. And oh the right? <laughs> it's so terrible. Ah! I know. <laughs> so she goes on to say that, like, and these are quotes from actual, like, real ad execs that were doing this, like, on purpose. They said, quote, identify your products with, quote, unquote, spiritual rewards, for objects with added psychological value, the report concluded, the price itself hardly matters. End quote. So Wolf points out that Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, showed women how their insecurities were being manipulated to make money for advertisers because they totally were in the 50s and 60s. But so many people read The Feminine Mystique in the 60s that by the late 60s and 70s, a lot of women had figured it out and they would they had moved beyond the model. Well, many women in my religious community, that wasn't true. But um, in the secular world, <laughs> many women had moved beyond that model of just, you know, the Donna Reed, the serene and demure homemaker. And, um, and they entered the workforce again. But so... Um, what Naomi Wolf points out now, her contribution to this historical timeline is she's saying, okay, so now what we're seeing is another marketing trend that's created to capitalize on women's insecurities. So Wolf says, quote, feminists inspired by Fredan broke the stranglehold on the woman's popular press of advertisers for household products who are promoting the feminine mystique. Then what happened is she said, the diet and skincare industries became the new cultural censors of women's intellectual space. And because of their pressure, the gaunt, youthful model supplanted the happy housewife as the arbiter of successful womanhood. End quote. So we'll <sighs> talk, right? So bad. Because what it is, to me, it turns my stomach because what it means is that the like advertisers couldn't get women to buy the latest model of home appliance anymore. They couldn't um, make women feel insecure about themselves as a housewife so that they needed to buy like the, the latest dishwasher or whatever. It got a lot more personal. Women were made to feel that in order to be successful women, they needed the latest model of body instead of mixer or whatever, mm -hmm. not just the latest clothes, which had always been the case for women, like forever, but a different physical body. And so she sums up, I think, kind of the thesis of her whole book by saying, quote, we are in the midst of a violent backlash against feminism that uses images of female beauty as a political weapon against women's advancement, the beauty myth. So that's her definition of the beauty myth. Um, she says, quote, in assigning value to women in a vertical hierarchy according to a culturally imposed physical standard, it is an expression of power relations in which women must unnaturally compete for resources that men have appropriated for themselves, end quote. 
Okay. Exactly. So I'm going to transition now to talking about uh, how Naomi Wolf talks about the beauty myth in the workplace and how the workplace nurtures and sustains the beauty myth. So she has a whole chapter on work. And one of the quotes I wanted to share, she says, quote, as women demanded access to power, the power structure used the beauty myth materially to undermine women's advancement. Employers did not simply develop the beauty backlash because they wanted office decoration. It evolved out of fear. Women work hard, twice as hard as men. And while women represent 50% of the population, they perform nearly two-thirds of all working hours, receive only one-tenth of the world income, and own less than 1% of world property. Housework totals 40 billion hours of France's labor power. Women's volunteer work in the U.S. amounts to $18 billion a year. The economics of industrialized countries would collapse if women didn't do the work they do for free. As women began to do full-time paid work, they still did all or nearly all of the unpaid work as well. So women entered the workforce in mass in the 1980s. In the U.S., between 1960 and 1990, the number of women lawyers and judges rose from 7,500 to 180,000. Women doctors went from 15,000 or so to 108,000. Women engineers went from 7,000 to 174,000. Even with two shifts doing the majority of the housework, women would still challenge the status quo. So according to Wolf, someone had to come up with a third shift fast. But a real meritocracy means for men, more competition at work and more housework at home. Mm -hmm. So she's sort of asserting that because women are working so much harder, we would challenge the status quo really quickly. So this third shift was created, which is the beauty myth. So she claims that there's sort of this question of how can the power structure prevent women's challenge to the status quo? And she claims it was twofold. Number one, by reinforcing the second shift, and she says, quote, the failures of the American and even European state-funded childcare act as an effective drag on the momentum of this immigrant group. What it needed was a replacement shackle, a new material burden that would drain surplus energy and lower confidence, an ideology that would produce the women workers it needs but only in the mold in which it wants them. And then the second way that they're preventing this challenge to the status quo, according to Wolf, is through the beauty myth and the, what she calls the PBQ or professional beauty qualification. Women's employment, this is a quote from the book, women's employment was stimulated by the widespread erosion of the industrial base and the shift to information and service technologies. Women are welcome to the labor pool, as expendable, non-unionized, low-paid, pink-collar ghetto drudges. Economist Marvin Harris described women as a literate and docile labor pool, and therefore desirable candidates for the information and people-processing jobs thrown up by modern service industries. The qualities that best serve employers in such a labor pool's workers are low self-esteem, a tolerance for dull, repetitive tasks, lack of ambition, high conformity, more respect for men who manage them than women who work beside them, and little sense of control over their lives. Oh, that last one really rings Ooh. true. Yeah. At a higher level, women middle managers are acceptable as long as they are male identified. I'm raising my hand here. <laughs> mm. And don't force too hard up against the glass ceiling. And token women at the top are useful. The beauty myth is the last best training technique to create such a workforce. It does all these things to women during work hours and then adds a third shift to their leisure time. Women took on all at once the roles of professional housewife, professional careerist, and professional beauty. Hmm. Who? Yes. Oof. And I think I don't, I, pretty much every woman I know would 
say that she feels tremendous pressure in all of these categories in life. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's the symptoms that we're feeling. This overwhelm and burnout and exhaustion that so many women are struggling with today, I think is is one of the results of taking all, on all of these roles at once. So Wolf goes on to assert that the PBQ or professional beauty qualification is being extremely widely institutionalized as a condition for women's hiring and promotion. She says, quote, the PBQ began in the 1960s as large numbers of educated middle-class young women began to work in cities living alone between graduation and marriage. A commercial sexualized mystique of the airline stewardess, the model, and the executive secretary was promoted simultaneously. Waitresses were told to wear tiger uniforms, paint their nails, and wear makeup to draw in male customers. She calls this the trickle-down effect of the PBQ, the professional beauty qualification. Then she claims it spread to receptionists and art gallery workers, women in advertising, merchandising, design and real estate, the recording and film industries, to women in journalism and publishing, then service industries like waitresses, bartenders, hostesses, catering staff. Then the PBQ was applied to any job that brings women in contact with the public. And there's a quote from the book where she says, what must this new serious professional woman look like? Television journalism vividly proposed its answer, that double image, the older man lined and distinguished seated beside a nubile, heavily made up female junior. That became the paradigm for the relationship between men and women in the workplace. Intended at first to sweeten the unpleasant fact of a woman assuming public authority, the message is that a powerful man is an individual and that his maturity is part of his power. If a single standard were applied equally to men as to women in TV journalism, most of the men would be unemployed. <laughs> it's true, but the women it's beside true. them. It's yeah, true. But the women beside them need youth and beauty to enter the same soundstage. With youth and beauty, then, the working woman is visible, but insecure, made to feel her qualities are not unique. But without them, she's invisible. She falls literally out of the picture. For women, seniority does not mean prestige, but erasure. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay. She goes on to say, is it any surprise that two decades into the legal evolution of the professional beauty qualification, working women are tense to the point of insanity about their appearance? The double standard for appearance is a constant reminder that men are worth more and need not try as hard. Wolf argues that the beauty myth has eroded women's self-esteem, making us ideal employees. Many economists, this is a quote, many economists agree that women do not expect promotion and higher wages because they've been conditioned by their work experience not to expect improvements in work status. Women are often unsure of their intrinsic worth in the marketplace. The PBQ keeps women materially and psychologically poor. PBQ leeches money and leisure and confidence from this rising class. It tires women out. Working women are exhausted, bone tired in a way that their male colleagues may not be able to imagine. It is this exhaustion that may call a halt to women's future collective advancement. And that is the point of it. So she goes on to say, professional high-achieving women have, because of it, just enough energy, concentration, and time to do their work very well, but too little for the kind of social activism or freewheeling thought that would allow them to question and change the structure itself. (gasps) Oh, this part gets me all fired up. Whoa. So overall, I appreciate Wolf's point that the beauty myth added a third shift for working women and that there's this double standard that, and women feel pressure to look good as well as perform well. Mm-hmm. So it really is something that um, distracts us from having the impact we want to have. Mm-hmm. Definitely. 
So another section that we really wanted to highlight in the book is how she talks about the beauty myth being fueled by marketing and women being exploited without always knowing it. So she says, quote, women's magazines for over a century have been one of the most powerful agents for changing women's roles. And throughout that time, they have consistently glamorized whatever the economy, their advertisers, and during wartime, the government needed at that moment from women. The traditional women's magazines, according to her, established a strong toehold in the 1950s when they encouraged women to strive for perfection in three main roles, the good wife, the good mother, and the efficient homemaker. And since then, it's morphed, where she says the definition of perfection, this is a quote, however, changes with the needs of employers, politicians, and advertisers. So she also continues to say in the book, quote, in the 1950s, advertising revenue soared, shifting the balance between editorial and advertising departments. Women's magazines became of interest to the companies that, with the war about to end, were going to have to make consumer sales take the place of war contracts. The main advertisers in the women's magazines responsible for the feminine mystique were seeking to sell household products. But then, when the restless, isolated, bored, and insecure housewife fled the feminine mystique for the workplace, advertisers faced the loss of their primary consumer. Somehow, somewhere, someone must have figured out that they will buy more things if they are kept in the self-hating, ever-failing, hungry, and sexually insecure state of being aspiring beauties, end quote. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Rings very true to me. And it's so pervasive that I found it hard to avoid the pressure to look young, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, what my, my demographic at least is constantly facing with the beauty myth right now is the pressure to look young. That and always be skinny. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So again, it helps to question who is benefiting from this behavior that feels so bad to me and what is the lie that I'm being told? Totally. I think those are such powerful, important questions. What's the lie I'm being told? And is there someone telling me this so they can make money off of me? Like you said, is someone like benefiting from this? I think that's so important. And even in the late 80s, early 90s, Wolf is talking about like, oh, you know, magazines airbrush their photos and there's this new technology where you can doctor a photograph to look real when it's not. And, you know, just reading it now, (laughs) I'm just like shaking my head going, you have no idea what's coming. It's getting getting Mm -hmm. so much worse. Um, Because back then a person couldn't alter their own pictures, but now, of course, everybody alters their photos. And so everything about the beauty myth is amplified by social media and just the the amount that we're being sold about beauty, which isn't even real and makes normal women feel terror about ourselves is just, again, it's just amplified. So the last point that we want to talk about, and we'll each take a turn on this, is just listing a few ways that the beauty myth really has dire consequences for women, physically, mentally, economically, emotionally. I'll share a couple of examples, and then Vanessa, you can share a couple of examples too before we wrap up. So one is that, and we've already touched on this a little bit, but the beauty myth tells women that our value is only in beauty and that beauty equals youth. And so that really means for women that we only have value for a very short short part of our lives, right? And and that means that self-esteem suffers greatly as we get older and we have a lot of anxiety about getting older. So I want to share one quote about this. Quote, women's magazines ignore older women or pretend they don't exist 
Magazines try to avoid photographs of older women, and when they feature celebrities who are over 60, retouching artists conspire to help beautiful women look more beautiful, i.e. less their age. End quote. The next point that I wanted to to highlight, because I think this is a really important one, is that the beauty myth tells us that beauty equals whiteness. So it's another, so important. It's so important. So another one, and this is the last one I'll share, is that the beauty myth tells us that in order to be sexual, we must be beautiful. And this makes pretty much all women feel disqualified from the joy of sex. So uh, this is what Wolf says about it. She says, quote, is beauty really sex? Does a woman's sexuality correspond to what she looks like? Does she have the right to sexual pleasure and self-esteem because she's a person? Or must she earn that right through beauty? End quote. Okay, so a couple other things um, that we haven't mentioned that, that we also thought worth noting. One of the other really negative consequences of the beauty myth, according to Wolf, she talks about how the beauty myth has allowed women's pain to morph in the form of cosmetic surgery and eating disorders. She also says the beauty myth suggests our culture's obsession with thinness is related to female obedience, conforming to the masculine atmosphere, weakening women's minds as well as their bodies, negating female sexuality, and denying women food, which is representative of status and honor. So she says, quote, a cultural fixation on female thinness is not an obsession about female beauty, but an obsession about female obedience, end quote. And one more quote on this topic. She says, girls and young women are also starving because the women's movement changed educational institutions and the workplace enough to make them admit women, but yet not enough to change the maleness of power itself. The pressure on them is to conform themselves to the masculine atmosphere. End quote. Wow. There's a lot in that, a lot to unpack. And I know we're not even kind of going into eating disorders, cosmetic surgery. But I just thought that was such an interesting point around how those are forms of violence against women. Mm. That really that really hit home for me in a big way. Mm-hmm. So what would you say as we come to the end of the discussion, Vanessa, if it is a takeaway or like one last quote that you want to share from the book? Oh, okay. Woo. So I'm going to end with this quote. It's true what they say about women. Women are insatiable. We are greedy. Our appetites do need to be controlled if things are to stay in place. If the world were ours too, if we believed we could get away with it, we would ask for more love, more sex, more money, more commitment to children, more food, more care. These sexual, emotional, and physical demands would begin to extend to social demands. Payment for care of the elderly, parental leave, childcare. The force of female desire would be so great that society would truly have to reckon with what women want in bed and in the world. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's something, honestly, I've been playing with lately is what if reclaiming pleasure is one of the ways we reclaim power in our Mm. lives and in the world at large. So this idea of female desire being so great that it could change the world that gets me really excited and really hopeful. Hmm. I love it. So mine is a quote from the very beginning of the book. And she says, quote, more women have more money and power and scope and legal recognition than we have ever had before. 
But in terms of how we feel about ourselves physically, we may actually be worse off than our unliberated grandmothers. End quote. Um, that really hit home for me. I thought, like, that is definitely true. It has definitely been true in my life, in different phases of my life. It breaks my heart. But to end on a positive note, like you just did too, as I get older, I'm just really glad I am getting better at being kinder to myself and my own, you know, running internal monologue. I'll catch myself being unkind to my body and, um, and I'm better about living my life without thinking about how others are perceiving me constantly, though it is a total constant battle. <laughs> but I, I do feel like, as you pointed out, there are really encouraging signs that culture's changing um, on an individual level and also like companies and ad campaigns and just that the cultural consciousness is changing. And that also gives me a ton of hope. It was neat. It was it was discouraging in some ways to read something, you know, from 1991 and think like, oh, yeah, in some ways it's even worse than it was then. But there were a lot of ways that I thought, oh, it's getting better. And for sure, seeing my kids, my daughters, um, they are not struggling with some of the things that I struggled with when I was their age. And I'm really, really grateful for to see that happening. Mm. So that brings us to the end. Vanessa, I'm so, so grateful. Thank you for joining me today. You are just an incredible woman. I'm so grateful that we got to spend this time together. Thanks for being here. Oh, you're so welcome, Amy. Thank you for doing this work in the world. It's it's life-changing and it's it really is. You're helping change the collective consciousness of the planet.